Today's episode is brought to you by imposter syndrome. I, uh, well, you know what? I was going to make a joke about the new character's ability and pretending to be something you're not, linking it back to my own depression, but I'm trying to do better than that. Self-deprecation does not help, and I shouldn't be hurting myself, is what I'd like to say, but I did play 2003's Mega Man X7 for this episode of What Am I Podcasting For? Hello, and welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Garlisle, and this show is the chronicle of my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series, from Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the hundred-plus games in between as I can, and oh boy, it's time. Uh, <laughs> listen, there are very few people who would argue against the idea that Mega Man X6 and X7 are like the lowest point that Mega Man may have reached in its official development, not counting, like, you know, the Taiwanese entertainment games, because those were developed by an independent group, not counting the Mega Man DOS games, because those also weren't Capcom Japan. This is probably, like, the cluster of the worst official Mega Man games right here. Mega Man X7 had a rocky start. It was the first Mega Man game to appear on the PlayStation 2, and that meant, like, new hardware, a whole new level of capability to execute, but also a whole new level of pressure. And unfortunately, the main crews that were interested in continuing to develop Mega Man's story had largely actually shifted over to the GBA and were interested in continuing the storyline over in the Zero games, or like spun off into Battle Network. And with X6 not having gone over very well, they decided that it wasn't worth putting an A-team to develop Mega Man X7 as the first actually 3D-integrated X game. Not the first 3D Mega Man games, we have had the Legends games, but like, the first attempt to bring Mega Man X into 3D. As a result of the team's inexperience and the awkwardness of the transition to 3D and a whole bunch of other stuff that we're going to get into, um, yeah, X7 is not well regarded. By the end of this episode, I'm going to demonstrate that I think X6 and X7 are bad games for very different reasons. Not the worst games ever made, like X7 is sometimes treated like, but the reasons that they are bad are very, very different. So let's just jump right in. X7 is set shortly after society has started recovering from the disasters of the world of X5 and X6. The world is actually pretty much rebuilt and back to metropolises and stuff as of the time of X7. That doesn't mean, however, that the world has necessarily settled from Maverick influence, but it's not really so much the Sigma virus's fault anymore. In an attempt to actually follow up and develop characters, X has chosen to step down from his role as Maverick Hunter. You know, now that it's not necessarily Sigma infections that are causing all these problems, X is a little bit less comfortable with the idea of fighting Reploids. He always has been. That's been a thing ever since, like, the first game, is that X is a little bit of a reluctant hero. So now he's stepped back, and he works in basically a command-slash-navigation role in the Maverick Hunters. And this would be fine, but without X on the front line, Maverick activity has only increased because the Maverick Hunters don't quite have one of their star hunters on their side anymore. 
In order to fill this gap, other various groups, including mercenary organizations, have started to appear to fill those groups. One of which we see in the opening sequence, which is fully animated for like the first time since X4. We have a fully animated, fully voiced cutscene where we see some reploids involved in like a shady mob deal basically get taken down by a young boyish reploid who has actually transformed himself into one of the people involved in the deal and uses that to get close and assassinate the other. Our actual game then starts, not with us playing as X, not with us playing as Zero, but playing as that boyish reploid that we just met, Axel, as he tries to flee his mercenary organization, Red Alert. This is the first thing that is new to X6, is that we actually have introduced a new playable character, who was kind of designed to actually be the main character of this game. In some ways, Axel plays very familiarly. You know, you still dash, jump, shoot. He is firing a rapid-fire pistol as opposed to a chargeable buster, so he handles a little bit more like Base did. He does, however, have some capabilities which will set him apart from X and Zero. Instead of an air dash or a double jump, Axel gets the ability to hover, maintaining his horizontal position and even being able to attack while hovering in the air. He has the ability to use a dodge roll, where if you dash while he's already dashing, he actually does like an invincible roll and can continue to attack during that time, which is kind of neat. And he has his ability to copy reploids. This, unfortunately, is integrated absolutely miserably into the game. There are three reasons for this. One, the selection of reploids he can copy is limited to a very small selection of reploids his size, which doesn't provide a whole lot of, like, variety, and honestly, all of them handle kind of terribly, so it's like, what's the point? Two, in order to copy a reploid, he has to use a charged shot that finishes off the target. This charged shot doesn't deal any more damage than his normal shot, and enemies in this game tend to have a lot of health, meaning that in order to safely ensure that you're getting the final hit, you're firing off these repeated charge shots that are really slow. Three is that it is poorly implemented in the stages themselves. The act of transforming almost never really does anything for you, except allowing you to get to a couple of the reploids. Put a pin in that, we'll come back. Point is, is there's no like interesting puzzles to solve with it, there's no real interesting or fun interactions. After the first playthrough where you experience it, you just forget this system's in the game and you have a better time. And that's unfortunate if that's the gimmick of the new main character, is something that you just don't want to interact with. Anyway, that's our character Axel. We get introduced to a couple things in the game design as well, the first of which is the god-awful lock-on system. Because this game happens partially in 3D, some segments are 2D, they are like still rendered using 3D graphics, but they are completely 2D sections like you would usually find in a Mega Man game. But because there's also the 3D sections, they needed to change how aiming worked, so they introduced a lock-on system. Basically, anything in like a frontal cone of view of your character gets a little reticle, and you have a button to tap to switch between targets. Because this is like a weird conal view, though, there's a lot of times where things that you don't care about are getting caught in it, or things that you do care about you kind of have to back away from, especially in 2D when things may sometimes be in the background or the foreground. Because for some reason, being in 2D did not stop them from using 3D aspects of enemy placement, and it doesn't work. 
let me make this really clear just from the beginning. It's especially bad with, like, liking to jump onto enemy projectiles that are coming at you when you're trying to actually just keep shooting at the enemy or the boss. It just ultimately isn't an actual lock-on system that, like, locks a target. It is a target select that is poorly implemented and has weird restrictions and just doesn't feel good. But the point is, is this system theoretically exists to enable the 3D gameplay. Sometimes segments of this game are classic 2D, and other times they are now 3D, with like an over-the-shoulder or more top-down sort of view, cameras that may or may not be adjustable. Sometimes it's still basically linear corridors, sometimes it's more open areas. The game does actually experiment a little bit. The main thing that I have issues with in 3D, one is that it becomes extremely easy to just not fight things. That can be advantageous in itself. It's honestly better than fighting things, sometimes, but it feels weird deliberately just skipping around everything because you can just jump around it now. And the other thing about 3D is the spawn radius of enemies. Enemies will either spawn in, like, all of a sudden really close to you and you'll be in danger, or they will spawn in far enough away that they're aggro AI has not detected you yet, and you can shoot them down before they do anything. It just doesn't quite feel great. It is interesting from a cheesable perspective, but not a super engaging perspective, is how I've taken the 3D stages in this game. But that's what we're introduced to in this opening segment. Halfway through the stage, Axel gets ambushed by a rampaging mechanoloid that was sent out to catch him, and then we jump over to the second half of our opening stage playing as Zero. And this stage is very specifically reminiscent of the X1 Highway, Zero even comments on it, and it even brings back enemies from the X1 Highway, but you can you can feel the difference in the quality of the creation when it makes this direct comparison. The clunk to the controls of this game. Sometimes the game feels okay, some of its dash-based movement still feels somewhat fluid. But the overall pace of the game feels slower, and a lot of things are a little more unresponsive about the controls, and it is particularly noticeable with Zero. Zero's saber slows him down and locks him in place more than ever before, especially in the air. Once you swing in the air, his momentum, like, gets locked, and it doesn't feel good, especially when we've got, like, the Zero series over on GBA is drastically improving the feeling of playing Zero. X7 is the worst he has ever felt to play. Now, there is some upgrades to Zero in this game. For one, his saber starts off able to cut down projectiles and bullets and stuff that are incoming. Normally, this is something you get as a boss weapon, and having it by default and having it affect a lot of the projectiles in this game for once is actually nice. Plus, 
he does have a very, very fat hitbox on his sword in this game. They were very generous with it, which definitely helps because enemy hitboxes also tend to be a little overly large. But his hitboxes are so big, he can actually hit behind himself with his slashes in this game. There's a little bit of extra meat to his sword swings that helps offset this feeling of clunkiness, but he is definitely way less fluid than you would like in this game. At the end of the stage, Zero and Axel meet up and end up fighting this giant lobster mechanoloid boss that, in a really good demonstration of the attention to detail, at the start of this fight, you actually have to flee it down a short auto-scroller, and the first thing that happens the moment you get control after the cutscene and you're in the auto-scroller is it just instantly punches you. You can jump if you know it's coming, but otherwise you're just getting slapped onto your butt, which, hmm, that's another thing. Some of the hits done in this game just, like, makes you flinch for, like, a split second and then you have your invincibility frames. Other hits in this game knock you backwards and onto your butt and your character has to get back up. And it takes, like, five seconds and it's really slow. Sorry, I'm nitpicking a lot so that we can get through a lot of these nitpicks early and I can focus on other things later. The big thing that is introduced during this kind of junk lobster mechanoloid fight at the end, though, is the fact that now we are using Axel and Zero, and you actually have a button that lets you swap between them freely. Each character in this game maintains their own health. They also maintain their own health max and energy max based on picking up upgrades. Those upgrades will only apply to that character. If either character dies, that's it. That is a life lost, and you're back to your previous checkpoint. But balancing out your character's life, taking advantage of it, you know, swapping off if one of them gets really low, and sometimes using the two of them in tandem to fight bosses when one of them is better for the boss than the other, given the situation, sometimes this pair-up and hot-swap mechanic works really well. Just like the shop was introduced in... Mega Man World 4, and then brought back and made part of the main series in Mega Man 7. Extreme 2 introduced that dual character system, and then they went, you know what? That's actually good. Let's bring that back to the main series. Afterwards, Zero arrests Axel for being in the midst of all the chaos and drags him back to the Maverick Hunter headquarters, and we introduce him to X. And oh boy, I gotta address this one now too. Um, I have no problem with the development that X would attempt to retire and go into more of a leadership role. I think that does actually fit him. What does not fit him is the way that that is written in this game, where X is absolutely like a holier-than-thou, just massive boomer energy. The kids these days are too violent. It's... hmm... Like, the basic situation as we understand it is that Axel has realized that something's wrong with Red Alert. He had joined them wanting to fight Mavericks like his idols, X and Zero, but it turns out Red Alert might have been using him for his capabilities and kind of abusing him, and so he decided to leave and in the process of leaving caused all that chaos. Okay, that's fine. X and Zero are basically kind of like, you know what, this is sort of your fault, so we're going to let you just stew it out in a jail cell. But then Red, the leader of Red Alert, contacts them. And X, frankly, is actually just about ready to hand Axel back over. But Red's like, oh, we know Axel's not going to come on his own. So we're issuing an official challenge that's going to involve you fighting eight of our... For some reason, he calls them captured and reprogrammed Mavericks or something like that, despite the fact that they are then in the actual fights treated as actual members of Red Alert that Axel knew and worked alongside. So the writing is clearly paying attention to itself. That's our excuse for having eight Mavericks. 
And the point that's so frustrating about the writing of X in this game is that Red Alert is established as a little crazy, a little powerful, a lot dangerous, willing to be problems that need to be solved. And X is very much ready to just throw Axel back to them. And it's only Zero saying, like, fine, if he wants to make up for his mistakes and be a hunter, I'll take him with me. We will deal with Red Alert. That is what happens here. X is just, it's awful. It misses the part of Reluctant Hero where X is a hero. Now, there is a couple other things I want to discuss in terms of the gameplay before we jump straight into stage select. The first is that, yes, X is unlockable in this game, and I'll tell you how in a moment. X is mostly similar to how he plays in the previous games, which means the only things really setting him apart from Axel are an air dash and a charge shot, and that's actually it at first. You can go and get various armor upgrades to him. They don't really do that much of interest this time. The only really interesting thing is access to, like, a long-distance glide that he can do that allows him to do, like, one or two skips in 3D areas that other characters can't, and that's about it. Like, yeah, he has a Giga Crash, he has the ability to charge his special weapons, like, it's the usual stuff, but he doesn't even get, like, alternate busters or, like, crazy new mobility options. X doesn't feel as impressive and distinctive of a character now that Axel's in the band, especially because X and Axel actually share special weapons. There's some differences, and we'll get into that when we talk about the armory, but they are kind of equivalent to one another because of the fact that Zero's double jump gives him added verticality and just the fact that he is melee while the other two are ranged, it kind of works out that most of the time you're set up for this game is zero and either of them. But how do you get X on your team? Well, he will either join you after you've beaten all eight Mavericks, or he will join you after you have rescued 64 of the 128 Reploids in this game. Because they brought back the rescuing Reploid system from X6. Now, in some ways, this is rougher. Unlike in X6, you're not just worried about the nightmare virus grabbing on. Any enemy attack that hits these Reploids kills them. This is more of a problem in some stages than others, but you can absolutely see it be a problem in some stages where just they are deliberately set up so that, like, you need to run forward and rescue them as soon as possible because the enemy's just going to attack through them. What they did do is they did simplify the reward system from this. A handful of Reploids in each stage will give you an extra heart tank or energy boost, but the main thing is two Reploids in each stage come with what's referred to as just chip data. Instead of being a specific power-up, X, Axel, and Zero each have basically their own skill tree in this game. And you put that chip data in order to level up their power, their speed, or their special, and each additional level that you get in those adds some effect. For instance, for each character, the first two levels of power boost the damage of their basic weapon, and the third level in power cuts all damage they receive in half. Upgrading speed allows X and Axel's buster shots to launch faster and further, but for zero, it gives him extra saber combos, etc, etc. I actually really, really like this system. It still allows them to lock off certain upgrades until later, that would be really powerful, and yeah, admittedly some of these are, like, game-changingly good. Once you have take half damage and triple invincibility time on these skill trees, your characters have immensely more durability than they would otherwise in the game. But I like this customization. With a little asterisk, you only can find a maximum of 16 of these per playthrough. Characters can receive 
up to 12 upgrade levels total each. And with the fact that you already have to rescue 64 Reploids in order to unlock X early, and the fact that health and energy upgrades are specific to the character who picked them up, X is basically useless. Forget about him on your first playthrough, at least. It might not have quite the variety of potential options as X6, but yeah, like I said with first playthrough, when you finish this game, I'll mention this right now, you can effectively New Game Plus, and the chips that you acquired, as well as X's armor parts, will carry over, allowing you to fully enjoy having X on your team a second or third or fourth time through, maxing out all the characters' power. You get the idea. Anyway, we're like 19 minutes into this episode. Let's just get to stage select. I think I'm caught up on everything. First, we'll start with the Deep Forest featuring Soldier Stone Kong. This is a pretty linear, fully 2D stage focused on giant, boulder-spitting Moai heads that you'll be climbing around on while dealing with boulder-throwing enemies that have way too much health. It's a really simple stage, it's barely noticeable were it any other game, but there's a lot of really funky hitboxes on things, and again, enemies that just have a ton of HP. At its best, it's bland. At its worst, it's mildly frustrating. It's just okay. As for the boss fight with Stone Kong himself, he is a giant ape with a sword and a shield, which is kind of cool, and he actually attacks using these, and you can potentially destroy them if your attacks are hitting those instead. His arena is taking advantage of the fact that this is still a 2D stage, but it is presented in a 3D environment, to actually have you circling around a central pillar in a 2.5D repeating style. Sometimes you can attack Stone Kong while he's running around on the ground around with you, other times he'll actually jump onto the pillar in the middle, and only X or Axel will be able to actually shoot him at a distance at this time, taking advantage of the lock-on. On the flip side, there are certain attacks that he does that basically only Zero can actually get high enough to dodge. In theory, this is a neat fight where the ability to swap characters actually fits and stuff. In practice, it's kind of a good demonstration of the stiffness of the lock-on, and whatever characters you bring to this fight, you really want Zero specifically, because the others just can't dodge certain attacks because the hitboxes are just a little bit too big. Cool ideas with mediocre execution is kind of the theme of X7. Our second stage is the Air Forces featuring Wind Crowrang, because we needed another air-themed bird boss. The first half of the stage is more notable. It's basically a 3D adaptation of X4's airship, where you're jumping across a bunch of individual flying ships. That's the idea. What you end up with is limited visibility of what's coming. Sometimes it's very hard to tell, like, just how much higher something else is in front of you. And sometimes the physics of the moving planes don't necessarily match, and the friction is weird, so you can end up going sliding off things, and it sort of sucks. The second half of the stage opts for an internal raid on a giant plane would be fine, but really shows off the capacity of the camera to get, like, stuck when it has to go around corners. You can't control it in this section, and so a lot of the times the camera is, like, lingering way behind you or getting... It's not refined. I get it. Famously, the thing about good camera work in 3D games is, when it's working, you don't notice the camera, because it's just doing what you wanted it to do, but it's not working in this game. Pro Rank himself is actually kind of a fun fight. Once 
once again, it's a 2D fight on top of a jet, but this time Krorang, when he's flying around, is in the background, meaning you'll want to use various ranged attacks to hunt him down. Pester him enough while he's in the background, and he will dive down onto the deck of the ship in order to fight you hand-to-hand, and there you can swap to zero and deal more damage to him. For the most part, this fight is fine, though he does have at least one homing attack that feels like it can't be dodged. I don't know, I was never able to successfully avoid taking damage whenever he used it, but otherwise, like, this is probably one of the better boss fights in the game. It's relatively fast-paced, it gets you actively swapping between characters. This is the ideal that X7 is trying to reach. Cyberfield, featuring Snipe Anteater, is next. This is a 3D cyberspace stage with a fully digital look and abstract design, where the stage is made up entirely of hexagons. You cannot fall off this stage, which is really nice, and it's especially going to matter in the second half of the stage, where certain platforms, when you jump above them, will teleport you to the underside of the platform, and now your camera and controls are all screwed up as you navigate along the underside and try to weave through this maze of teleporters. I say maze, it's not actually all that long or bad, but it is, um... It is a little bit janky and disorienting. Speaking of going on the underside of things, the Anteater fight is in 3D space but set on top of a cylinder. However, despite the fact that it's a cylinder and you would almost think you're able to, like, go all the way around it in what would be, like, an interesting physical fight, you're stuck on the top half and Anteater can go wherever the hell he wants. As his HP drops, he swaps between, like, just direct attacks at you, to, like, throwing out little mine ant things that wait for you, to eventually laser turrets that he deploys. But the kicker of this fight is, if he decides to go and run and hide on the underside of the platform, there's almost no way to hit him. And that can really suck, because especially in the last half of his fight, where he's got the laser turrets out, they can be all over the place and firing at you from whatever direction they feel like, where you will probably not have time to see them coming in dodge. I really highly suggest saving this fight for very late in the game, once you have like half damage on people and a ton of health, because this fight's just cheap. I don't like this fight at all. For a fourth stage, we're going to the Lava Factory for Flame High and Art. This stage starts off with a 2D section that has a ton of Reploids in danger. They pop up right in front of enemies that are going to attack you, pop up next to bombs where you have to run over and grab them really fast. There's spots where if you accidentally take the slightly wrong path through this, you will have gotten close enough to a bomb on the other side of a wall that you were supposed to go around to, and that Reploid's just dead. You had no way of knowing that was the wrong path. The second half goes into 3D for probably the most open navigation section of this, if you just find your way across a ton of platforms over some lava in order to reach an exit, but what people really know this stage for is the boss. Now, this boss fight is cool in theory. We start on a big platform with doppelgangers of the boss attacking us. The actual boss is riding this giant mechanical antelope around the outside of the arena, and we need to shoot that antelope a ton to make it stop and crouch down, and then we can climb up on it and start the real boss fight. And how the boss attacks you during this will depend on where you are on the anteater. If you're on the main back of the anteater, you're relatively safe, but the boss will gang up on you with his doppelgangers, which can be destroyed temporarily, but mostly serve to divert your 
attacks. If you try to fight him on the head, the boss will be throwing projectiles while the antelope is like moving around and you're in danger of sliding off and into the lava, and also it's firing missiles at you. You have a choice of how you want to fight this dude. Really cool fight potentially, but mostly it actually kind of comes down to cheese strats where you keep him up at the head and just keep looping him back into that location while he's vulnerable. Oh, and there's one other problem with this fight. That's unedited, by the way. That is actually what this fight sounds like, because this boss has to scream at, like, every single attack he does for the entire long-ass fight. And remember, he has doppelgangers. Each of them do voice clips. <sighs> okay, we, we need an audio cleanse after that. So let's head to the central circuit with Ride Borski. This is X7's mandatory ride chaser level, but actually this one's kind of okay. The big thing about this is that first off, it is on a circuit and it's in 3D. This is basically like a Mario Kart type section. Running into things does do a little bit of damage to you, but there's nothing in here that's going to instant kill you, the way that X5 would, for instance. And you can actually go very slow in this section if you want to. If you're not holding down the accelerate button, you can almost walk faster than the ride chaser. However, you can't take the entire thing slow. The basic idea to clear the stage is that there are a about two dozen bombs across the stage, and you need to ride over each of them within a three-minute window, otherwise the whole place is going to blow up. Having said that, it's actually fairly easy to do this. Once you get a handle on the controls, I can pretty reliably get every single Reploid in the stage and all the bombs in a single go. It's definitely the easiest of the Ride Chaser stage. Borski himself is fought in 3D, and you know those like motorcycle cages? That's the idea the arena is trying to represent. Mostly you end up stuck in the center of the arena while Borski tears around the outside pretty dangerously. Sometimes he'll dash directly at you and good luck actually avoiding it because his homing is absolutely crazy. And sometimes he'll kind of chase you out of the center with like an orb of rotating laser thing. But like, by and large, this boss is not terribly dangerous. He's just kind of frustrating to keep a beat on. He likes to go invincible and run around a lot. Next up, the tunnel base featuring Vanishing Gungaroo. This is a 3D stage that is primarily a ride armor dedicated stage. There's a couple different ride armors you will pick up over the course of the stage, and like usual, oh, here's some hazards the ride armors can walk through, and you end up in like this giant melee where you need to take out like a dozen enemy ride armors. And I'd like to say that's exciting, but it's kind of all stuff we've seen before, including the fact that if you finish the stage with a ride armor, when Vanishing Gungaroo challenges, you, that right armor will be right next to you and you can jump in and start messing him up. Gungaroo himself is piloting a right armor for the first half of the fight, 
being a very large target, but a fairly slow target. Once you take down the right armor, this flips. Gungaroo himself is tiny and is a fighty, fast little dude who constantly tries to come at you with like flips and kicks and all that sort of stuff. Because of how much life he has between the two phases, this fight can go long, but Actually, I think this is like, generally, this is 3D action being done all right. Everything he does is reactable enough that it doesn't feel unfair. It's just kind of a slow fight. Also, I just want to mention that the boomerang weapon is super effective against the kangaroo. So that's fun. Next, let's head to the radio tower featuring Tornado Tunyon. Hey, what's your favorite animal? Mine's an onion. That aside. Uh, remember Infinity Maginian stage in X6? The stage where you were fighting a giant robot in the background that was harassing you throughout the stage? But actually, the stage was basically a completely linear left-to-right just run with the occasional pit? Well, it's that again, but now with a 2.5D presentational twist, and the giant mechanoloid in the background is now just a giant lobster robot. And the mid-boss itself is even worse, because it can just go invulnerable for long periods of time, pop out of its shell afterwards, and then just decide, oh, I'm gonna do that attack again, and go right back in. Just as garbage as it was the first time, to be honest, even as it's a cool concept. The boss itself is the easiest in the game, I think. The big idea with Tunyon is it's a 3D fight, and all of his attacks, or like almost all of them at least, involves spinning around while making himself vulnerable. You basically just keep running away from him and turning around to fire while he's attacking, and you'll barely get hit in this fight. Our final stage is the battleship featuring Splash Warfly. This is a stage set on a fleet of battleships battleships where eventually they start going on fire. The big thing here is that pretty much each section of this stage ends in like some form of different mini-boss. Like, very interestingly, a plane, but it's just sitting on a platform that moves around and carries the plane with it, and the plane just spins and fires in random directions. Like, I guess that's a mid-boss design. After you've trashed the battleship fleet, you will fight Warfly himself on the flotsam of the fleet in 3D. The basic idea is that he will jump into the water Water, jump back out somewhere nearby, do different water attacks or attacking you with his glaive. Weirdly, he never takes advantage of the fact that there are different platforms in the water to harass you from afar, so it might as well just be like a little single tiny platform fight. Could probably be frustrating if you were to take him on early without much life, but admittedly he was one of the later bosses I took on on both playthroughs, and he's just kind of there. Anyway, it's been a few months since I've gotten to talk about weaponry, so now that we've taken out all eight bosses, let's talk about it. First, let's talk about Zero. The most notable new factor for Zero is that, because of the fact that they had to adapt for 3D controls, technically up in special or down in special and attacks like that wouldn't work, so they had to get a little more creative with his inputs in this. The way they tried to do this, which is actually really interesting, is a couple of the abilities actually swap Zero Saber for different weapons. While using these different weapons, you also gain access to a different special attack. For instance, you get a glaive that has innately longer range and can be used in a thrusting attack, or you get a pair of daggers that can actually be thrown like boomerangs from another attack. This would be really cool, but I don't think it really works all that well, because most of his kit is still attached to the Z-Saber and cannot be done with the other weapons. And also, almost every one of Zero's special abilities in this game 
is focused around doing some attack that then also creates a projectile so Zero has some range. And so it's like, okay, why would I bother really swapping to those alternate weapons all that much? One thing that I do like is that they gave Zero's saber the bullet-canceling ability as an innate thing. In most other X games, that is something you have to unlock from a boss. In this game, Zero is able to cut down projectiles, and he's able to cut down a lot of projectiles, which is really nice. The only attack of his that I would say is really all that notable, though, is the one you get from Tunyon, which is an upward-rising attack you do while dashing, but you can do it like immediately after dashing, so functionally it can just be a standing attack. It just does a ton of damage to everything. In fact, before we get into X and Axel's weapons, that's something I have to note, is the damage system in this game is screwed up. There isn't really weapon weaknesses in this game, not in the way that we are used to. There is, like, bosses do have weaknesses that cause them to flinch. They don't take extra damage from it. And so what this means is that attacks that are really strong, like Zero's Wind Uppercut thing, are strong always to basically everything in this game. And what this tends to mean in practice is that, especially when it comes to Axel and X, the weapons that you use and how good they are are going to be determined entirely by how much damage they do, because stuff tends to have a lot of health in this game. So, let's discuss the weapons. Again, Axel and X share special weapons in this game. X gets the advantage that he can charge the special weapons, but in this game, for the most part, the charged special weapons are almost all entirely useless. They tend to be really weak, they consume more weapon energy, which, honestly, weapon energy is a big limitation on your special weapons in this game. There's a couple that I'm going to mention, but otherwise, they are just like bigger versions of the weapons as you already see them. So, Axel, on the other hand, well, we'll get to what a couple of his special weapons do when we get to the one where it really matters. Anyway, worst special weapon. I have to give this to Prorang's Wind Cutter. This is a short-range boomerang. We've had boomerang weapons in the game before. First off, this thing does, like, no damage, so why would you ever use it over, you know, any of the other weapons? And second off, it's even worse in the basic buster because this weapon arcs around to hit its target. That's always been a bit of a thing in the 2D games where maybe it goes over the target and under, but for some reason in the 2D sections of this game, the wind cutter can go on the Z-axis and go around things. You can literally, like... If this was a 2D game, it would be like watching it go literally through an enemy and back and not hit them because it was actually going around them. Why the hell would you design a weapon like that? Why is that an issue in the 2D section? Um, only slightly less useless is Borsky's moving wheel. This is your usual ground tracking projectile. Not that much damage, who cares? The one time it's useful is that it hits Snipe Anteater on the bottom side of the cylinder, and it is technically his weakness, I guess. But like, that's the only time you would break this weapon out. Speaking of Snipe Anteater, his sniper missile is exactly the homing shot that you think it is. It's okay damage, but extremely low rate of fire, so it's not actually super useful. Technically, it can pierce through a group of multiple enemies, but usually what happens is it goes through the first one and then swerves off into Narnia. In the mild utility phase is the Gaia Shield from Stone Kong. This one, basically just after like a second, generates a shield in front of you that blocks an actually significant proportion of the game's projectiles. There are a few places in the game where I did actually break this out for safety reasons. It does its job as a utility thing. The remaining four weapons in this game are all your offensive tool weapons. These are the ones you're going to choose. All of them deal really big damage. And again, like I mentioned earlier, the thing is, is that all of these weapons deal lots of damage to your targets. 
The usually weakest one of these is the Splash Laser from Warfly. This is a short-range attack that fires off a rapid-fire set of shots. Against regular enemies, this is actually fairly strong because it is rapid-fire and they have low invincibility frames. Not so great against bosses, though. Theoretically, the gimmick of this weapon is that if you use it repeatedly in a short amount of time, its range actually increases with each additional shot, which is a cute little touch. Unfortunately, its ammo consumption is high enough that that's not ever really going to be something you think about doing it. The big thing about it, though, is that if you charge it, this is probably X's maybe one of two notable charge weapons. Charge Splash Laser fires just automatic rapid-fire Gatling water guns in front of you at a fairly long range, and you can charge it up again while it is active so you can keep it going. There's a few places where, like, if you're fighting multiple riot armors, this is a halfway decent weapon to use against them, and it's actually really good against the final boss because of its high damage and long-range combination, but you will still usually get more damage out of the other three weapons we're about to discuss, such as Flame Hyenard Circle Blaze. Short-range projectile, if it hits something, it explodes into a circular explosion that will hit another two or three times. Damage is high and damage is good. It's just not quite as fast as pumping out damage, but you could actually maybe make a case for this as actually being above one of the weapons coming up, because you at least get some ammo usage out of this. This is also the other weapon that I think is worth noting for X, because the charged version of this just explodes, like, multiple times in the location. If you have a very stationary target, this thing just shreds it. Next up is the even shorter range Volt Tornado from Tunyon. This one is basically, you get a big tornado summoned up at your location that is actually, like, despite the fact that it looks very visually big, the hitbox on it is very narrow. After a couple seconds, it goes flying in a direction. The trick here is that this tornado is actually really powerful, and because it lingers where you summon it, if you catch an enemy in the location that it summons, this thing hits multiple times and once again just absolutely shreds things. You could absolutely make the argument that this is actually the best weapon in the game because it actually has ammo unlike the hilarious explosion from Gungaroo. Yeah, not not like explosion gun or explosion can't. No, the weapon is just named explosion. It fires off a little projectile that lingers immediately in front of you for a moment and then bursts into a slightly larger Last, it actually has like a really weak animation for what the weapon is named. What it doesn't have is weak damage. This is like the most damaging weapon in the game to almost everything, frankly. The limitation on explosion is that it also is the most ammo-hungry weapon I think I've ever seen. We're almost talking like Mega Man 2 Flash Stopper levels of ammo consumption. With your initial energy gauge, you can use the explosion weapon once. If you max out your energy gauge, you might be able to use it four times. Now, if you can use this weapon four times in a row, the boss is probably dead. But there is another factor that has me putting this above Volt Tornado, and this is Axel's specific thing. For a couple of Axel's weapons, while he is using that special weapon, he replaces his default pistol with a special weapon. For instance, the Volt Tornado gives him a laser gun. Most of these are more or less parallel to the weapon he already uses and aren't that remarkable. Explosion replaces his pistol with a grenade launcher. This is a little bit clunky and reduces your ability to move because you can't move while firing, unlike his other weapons. However, to make up for it, you get a very powerful weapon with a very long range that is, like, probably one of the best default attacks in the game. It's easily, like, the biggest upgrade Axel gets is just having explosions so he can equip this grenade launcher. 
Okay, so that about covers the weapons. Not really the shining set of weapons. Again, the fact that power is so fixed in this game, and basically all of the strong weapons are like short-range high power, not my favorite set of weapons. But let's check in with the story and wrap up the game. One thing that I do like is that the story occurs basically after every stage. You get a little cutscene. Not an animated one, but a dialogue and voiced cutscene. Uh, I haven't mentioned the English voice acting for this game. It's bad. Like, it's funny bad. Not in, like, that completely amateur way that Seven was, but just in, like, the most of the lines in this feel like they're being read with no emotion or direction whatsoever. But here's basically the story as it emerges. We learn about Axel's past with Red Alert. Apparently Axel was basically taken in by Red, who is kind of an adoptive father figure to him, and Axel trusted him for a long time, because Axel's, you know, a little bit weird. He doesn't know where he got the ability to copy other Reploids, but he realized before long that maybe Red took him in specifically because he had this ability, because it made him a good mercenary. But for a long time it was fine, and then one day Red started to change, and Red started asking for Axel to hand over the data of the Reploids he'd copied. Red started using that to buff up the other Reploids and make himself stronger and all this other stuff, and Axel started to realize he was being used and the Red Alert had become a little bit powerful, so he fled to go join his idols in the Maverick Hunters. Then, for, like, the last couple ones, we swap over to Red's point of view, where we find out that, like, he didn't hate the Hunters necessarily, they were just kind of like, you know, they were both basically achieving the same goal as what he sort of thought, until Sigma got into his head. Because Sigma's back. There's no explanation for what Sigma is doing here, other than Sigma is here. Not as, like, a virus even, but as Robot Sigma. And while Sigma and Red are initially working mutually beneficially, where Red's getting Sigma the data he wants, and Sigma's powering up his mercenaries, Red eventually decides, like, no, we're strong enough, nobody can beat us, and Sigma's like, well, I still want you to fight the Maverick Hunters, and by the way, I've turned your crew all Maverick, so, you know, you'd better listen to me. And on that, just absolute facepalm of a plot twist of, of course it's Sigma, it's an X game, we're not gonna explain how, we head into the Red Alert stages. The first of these is Palace Road. This is a pure, slow auto-scroller while you're being chased by basically a steamroller mechanoloid. At the end of the section, you get to turn around and fight it. It has a very Crash Bandicoot feel of, like, you are oftentimes running towards the bottom of the screen, towards the camera, and so you have minimum reaction time. Even though this section is all in all very, very slow, very plotting, and also very low effort, I haven't talked much about the visuals of this game. Generally, they work. They have a good, like, cel-shaded look to them, and the art direction is generally sound and fits the X vibe and thematic very well. Except in this stage, where the backdrop is literally just orange. Not like an orange skyline or an orange cityscape. No, the color orange. It's particularly notable when the stage ends and the camera like pans down and you can see into the distance and it's literally just orange and bits of the stage you just finished. 
Then we head into the Crimson Palace itself, which is basically a two-parter. The first part ends with us finally getting our showdown with Red, although there is decidedly less emotion involved than you would think. This fight's really, really slow. It's set on a series of platforms, and the basic idea is that Red will teleport to a random platform, and when you attack him, he will counterattack with shockwaves that will force you to jump to other platforms, or if you're zero, just take it in the face. If you stand on any single platform for long, ghosts of Red will appear around you and attack that platform, so you do need to keep moving. It is a really, honestly, kind of easy fight. It's just a long and tedious fight. For the fact that Red will usually take, like, one hit, counterattack, force you to move, and then have teleported somewhere else. Sometimes he teleports and does an attack that makes him invincible, and he just has a ton of health and nothing does that much damage to him. This is a long, slow, meandering fight. And one that can go wrong at any moment, because if you fall off the platforms, you die instantly. I didn't have a problem with it. The platforming is very generous, but I know some people have. Better than the gate fight, but also in the same vein of, like, just not a fun fight. Afterwards, we get a cutscene where Red accepts his loss and sets the place to self-destruct. Axel wants to go save him, but Red just decides, nope, it's time to die. It's kind of a nothing scene. Like, we've been seeing the script since, like, ballet back in, like, World 4, to be honest. The last stage does offer us a neat little thing where we have split paths. One path takes you to more of a platforming difficulty section with a lot of, like, spikes and pits. The other one sends you to a gauntlet of fights where you have to, once again, take out a ton of ride armors, but this time you don't have one of your own. After that, it's some more general stage, and then we get to our boss rush, the only thing notable about this boss rush is that the healing items provided for you are full heals, but full heals only work for one character, so you do need to keep that in mind. And also, weirdly, full heals in this game also instantly fill up sub-tanks if you got them, so you actually have just an absolute ton of resources for this. Oh, and I guess the boss refights here are actually themed kind of neat in that each of the teleporters is in front of a gravestone. Man, that would have really fit in X6's refights. And of course, after the refights, it's time to fight Sigma himself. As is usual for Sigma, this is two phases. Sigma 1 isn't that hard. It's a 2D fight where he's like got this big rifle that he uses to fire bouncing bullets. He sometimes teleports around. Every once in a while, he'll go hide in the background. Every once in a while, he'll pull out a giant laser cannon. It's relatively simple and easy. The main thing that is difficult in this is just that he has a lot of health and he might just out-damage race you. As for Sigma 2, because of course there's Sigma 2, we're fighting on giant chunks of debris as this giant Sigma robot, and I mean gigantic Sigma robot, rises up in the middle. This robot attacks with various projectiles. He can teleport around to different angles to get different attacks on you and make him vulnerable or invulnerable to certain different ranges of weaponry. The most dangerous thing he can do is if he's really far from you, he might rush in with a punch. This is extremely hard to react to. Like, there is no visible wind-up or audio cue for it or anything. He just suddenly is rushing across the screen to punch. This thing does huge damage. Like, I think if you don't have any health upgrades and didn't get the take-half damage, it is your entire 
entire health bar is the type of damage that that would be dealing. Fortunately, the leftmost platform that's available to you is actually, like, very, very safe. If you hide on the, like, lower end of it, you'll never be hit by the punch, and also, like, he'll oftentimes get lured into spawning right next to you. It's a very randomized fight, but you can kind of manipulate that randomness and find safer areas to use. Anyway, in the end, everybody tries to make their escape. Uh, Sigma shows up all of a sudden again, and just, like, punches Axel into a wall. Then, while X and Zero are getting the upper hand on Sigma, or trying to, Red comes out of nowhere and attacks X and Zero. Sigma celebrates his victory and is like, Okay, cool, I can get all my power back from you. Goes to basically, like... I don't know, absorb Red? And then Red pulls out Axel's gun and shoots Sigma in the chin and this knocks him out of the tower and you just giant falling scream Sigma. A scene so intensely cliche, I can't help but laugh. And of course it turns out Red was, you know, just Axel disguised as Red and he's like, pretty cool job, eh? And they just kind of laugh it off and that's it. Like, they beat Sigma again. They don't even treat it that seriously. Like, Jesus. Depending on which character delivered the final blow, we get some different scenes. For Zero, uh, he gets a nightmare of X trying to kill him, only to get woken up by an alarm. People have theorized this might have been a slightly prophetic dream trying to link it back to the events of Mega Man Zero, after, like, escaping out of the very things that set up Zero, where Zero is in a timeline where humanity didn't recover. X and Axel's ending are both like two sides of the same coin. They're more about the idea of Axel joining the Maverick Hunters, and X basically being like, no, he's too immature, his methods are too violent, he's not ready to become a Maverick Hunter yet. But even Cygnus is like, listen, if you're not going to do the Maverick Hunting X, somebody has to. We're the Maverick Hunters. It's particularly frustrating in X's because his just absolute pride and ego in his writing in this game is on display. There's a whole thing where like, oh yeah, you couldn't train anybody to be as good as I am. That's not X, but whatever. That's it. That's the end of the game. Roll credits. As I mentioned before, once you finish the game, you can save it, and there is sort of a new game plus. You don't keep your weapons that you got from the bosses, you don't keep your health and energy upgrades, but you do keep armor parts and upgrade chips, and X is going to be available for you from the beginning of the game. And to be honest, on a second playthrough, when you have all these like extra health and extra invincibility frames and all this other stuff, the game is actually more bearable the second time around. X7 kind of like to play it well in a way that feels good relies on using a whole lot of cheese strats on bosses. You gotta skip past a lot of things in 3D. You kinda get to a point where you just have enough defenses that you just run through things that should be dangerous and count on your invincibility frames. And like, if that's the way you like to play, X7 can almost sort of become fun, I guess. 
Unlike its predecessors in X5 and X6, I don't think any single low point in X7 is close to that bad. Like, Snipe Anteater is a junk boss, but he's not nearly as bad as, like, some of the level design in X6 or the completely arbitrary application of the nightmare effects. Nothing is nearly as absolutely difficult as the ride chaser segment in X5 that was full of all the instant death. The lows of X7 are not as low as some of its predecessors. But, and I have to say this, I don't think it has the highs to make up for it either. Like, let's look at the story. I like the characters having more conflicting personalities. I like their attempts to develop X's tail in a direction. Axel is actually a pretty good character. They gave him a whiny voice, but he is a good idea for a character, you know? He's basically a child soldier who's been misused for his superpowers, who is trying to find a new home with his idols and deal with the fact that his adoptive father figure is a villain. But they kind of blow that out of the water when they just make Sigma the actual villain, because of course it has to be Sigma. It's a Mega Man X game. That has to happen, right? And that, coupled with some weak writing to the actual resolution of things to X's character, means that all these things that could have happened end up just falling flat. They are not well executed at all. And that's kind of the theme of this, is everything that they want to do in concept, they don't actually manage to execute. There's the whole, we're implementing the 3D stuff, but this ended up involving a lock-on system that feels like jank and junk, and the character who doesn't rely on the lock-on system is Zero, who feels like clunky to control. Weapon damage, they, I mean, they tried some new ideas, like with Zero's different weapons, but they don't really matter that much, and they thwart the weapon system entirely by just making it so high damage weapons are always high damage to everything. And then, like, beyond just the 3D, we have the 2D sections, where there are still enemies using the Z-axis, and they designed a weapon that rotates around the Z-axis for some dumb reason. They use the lock-on to try to be a clutch out of actually just designing for, you know, 2DX action that worked up to that point. The visuals are mixed. I mentioned this a bit earlier, but like, generally the models look fine, the general art direction is fine, sometimes some sections are weak looking, but it's fine. But I didn't mention the fact that they are animated like hot garbage. Everything is really stiff and clunky. Enemies will literally just like pivot on the center of their model as opposed to actually bothering to turn. That's where this game fails on a visual front, because like, if it was just this style but it animated smoothly and fit in 3D, it probably would have been fine. But instead, it really is, it looks amateur. And yes, this is X's first time in 3D, and this was not an A-team that had been used to working in 3D all that much, but it still doesn't look great. On an audio front, we'll, we'll get to the music in a moment, but like, the voice clip spam is not just a Flame Hyenard thing, but it's particularly notable there, but it becomes a problem when bosses are constantly overlapping their own voice clips. Or sometimes things just barely have audio at all. You may not even notice when you pick up heart tanks or sub-tanks in this game, because the audio cue for them is balanced to be almost inaudible. It's so quiet. X7 has good ideas in place. Stuff like the partner swapping. Sometimes that works where your different partners can handle different situations. But, like, a lot of the time... They end up just highlighting the flaws of the game and the way that everything executionally is just kind of below average. At best, X6, when X6 is bad, it is really, really bad. X7 is never that bad, but it's never all that good either. You don't get rewarded with the highs of X5 after going through the bad parts. You just get kind of a meh game. 
Well, except for the OSD. The music of this game hits a bit of a new generational feeling. It is still very rooted in the rock background that the Mega Man series has relied on up to this point for its music. It probably should. That is Mega Man X's musical identity. But now we've got a little bit more influence from like a techno and a drum and bass type background slightly creeping in. If anything, I'd actually compare this era of soundtrack to like the Sonic Adventure, Sonic Heroes, Shadow the Hedgehog era of Sonic. It kind of has some of that feel to it, and I mean that in a completely complimentary way, because Sonic is also a series that was having some, you know, some gameplay troubles in this era, but was also still absolutely nailing it musically. So let's sample some tracks. The first one we'll sample is a very straightforward track that feels very X, but also very X7, which is the opening stage, the first half while you're playing as Axel. This stage, you'll feel the rock vibe in it, you can absolutely hear where the guitars are coming in, but you'll hear a little bit of that outside influence and that, like, that more modern, I don't know, techno D&B style feeling working its way into it. To go even more, hell yeah, this is X music. Let's take Sigma Phase 1, because yeah, this is this game loves its guitar solos, and so will X8, and you're gonna see exactly what I mean. Finally, what I think I've seen as one of the more popular tracks from X6 is Snipe Anteater stage, the cyberspace stage. This one has a very distinctive sound for it. It's very upbeat. It's not quite rock. It's almost a little bit more poppy. It also feels like it's taking some inspiration from the Battle Network games and their more digital sound, which, you know, it's in cyberspace. That fits. It even works in the Yoku block noise as part of its track, and I could not highlight this.
And with that, we're done talking about Mega Man X7. And with any luck, we are through the worst of it as far as X is concerned. Although, don't tell anybody, but I think I like X7 maybe more than... Okay, I definitely like it more than X6. I might like it more than X3. That's a weird thing to say. I don't think I'm putting it any higher than that, though. Next time on this podcast, I need to roll back to 2002, because I have put off... We got away from Mega Man Battle Network for one week, but this is, like, this right here, the right now, this is when Mega Man started going full-on with Battle Network, Battle Network, Battle Network, Battle Network. So expect Battle Network to be roughly every other game we cover for a little bit. So that means the next episode will be Battle Network 3. However, I feel it very important to note, my laptop is sort of starting to fail me as I edit this. There is a chance that this will provide some delays in me actually getting that episode out come the start of December. So forgive me if it's not there on time. In the meantime, if you liked what you've been hearing, feel free to hit me up at whatamipodcastingfor at gmail.com. Stop by Twitter, I'm not calling it X, you can't make me, at whatamipodcast4, using the number 4, if you want episode updates when they go live, or just follow on your podcast provider of choice, or like, manually visit waipf.podbean.com, we even have an RSS feed if you use one of those. Thanks for listening, I've been Garlisle, and just remember, Sigma made me do it. Don't ask how Sigma's here, but he made me do it. This is a Mega Man X game. It has to be Sigma. I'm really glad we're getting rid of Sigma for the remaining games. Wait a second, next week is Mega Man Battle Network 3. I, whew, that's going to be a fun time to revisit. <laughs> uh, I have some feelings that have gone unresolved about that game that have caused me to not touch it for years. So this will be a very interesting revisit.